By the way, talking about the darkness closing, closing in, in that song, the Lord giving and taking away, I don't know why I didn't mention this this morning. I was thinking about ten different things, I guess, instead of thinking about this during the prayer request time. But pray for two co-workers at Target, the husband and wife, uh, Van and Jennifer. I don't know them very good, honestly, but I don't, I don't know that they're believers. I don't get the impression that they are, but look, again, I don't know them all the great. But pray for them. They lost a four-month-old baby um, Wednesday or Thursday, I think. I don't know much of the details at all. But pray for Van and Jennifer and the loss of their child. So they're no doubt going through a rough time. Talk about the darkness closing in. Uh, Judges 4. Maybe after we get through, Mike, we can pray for them too. Um, All right, last time we met, we considered the first three judges of Israel in chapter 3, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And we saw that they were each unique in how they delivered Israel from the enemy. The next judge we're going to consider is Deborah. Uh, The account concerning her and her team of deliverers, I'm going to call them a team of deliverers, that's what it ends up being, is found in two chapters of the Bible, not just one, not one verse like Shamgar. Two chapters are devoted to Deborah and her judgeship and the the, the delivery from the enemies, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Judges. Chapter 4 is the story of Israel's deliverance from the enemy. Chapter 5 is the celebration of that deliverance from the enemy. You see that also. You have the Song of Moses over in Exodus 15 as well. We'll talk about that next time. In chapter 4, the outline tonight is going to be built around the characters in the story. So tonight we're going to see how the Lord delivers Israel and the judge under the judgeship of Deborah. First of all, we'll look at the oppression of Jabin and Sisera in verses 1 to 3. Well, there's a homiletical outline. The oppression of Jabin and Sisera. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, yes, it's pronounced Hatzor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. As we look at this, at verse 1, we are not surprised to see Israel and evil again, are we? seems to be a recurring theme with, with, with them. Doing evil in the sight of the Lord. We're saddened by that fact, but we're not surprised by it because we know that's the general cycle that takes place in these chapters, chapters 3 through 16 of the book of Judges. The land had been undisturbed for some 80 years, but that doesn't mean that evil's not going to return again. Evil comes back, makes a strong comeback, according to chapter 4, verse 1. Israel has a relapse into the pattern of behavior that Judges 2 predicted they would. So we're not surprised to see Israel falling back into the pattern of sin again. By the way, we should never be surprised at the return of sin. It's always there, always, as Paul said, it's it's always present in Romans chapter 7. It's there. We should always be on guard against its intrusion into our lives. We're not surprised at that, but we are surprised to see in verse 1 Ehud's name mentioned. Why are we surprised to see that? Well, the last judge we saw was in the last verse of chapter 3, and that was Shamgar. After him, 331 says, after Ehud, came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. But then the narrative picks up in chapter 4, verse 1, and says, uh, after Ehud died, uh, Israel again was oppressed by the enemy. Why is that? All likelihood, probably because Shamgar was just a local judge, did not make a very much of uh, a great impact to the whole nation of Israel and his judgeship. He was a judge, definitely, 
had something to do. He accomplished a great feat, but it was probably a local feat, and the information concerning him is scarce. And so we pick up with, uh, the text picks up with Ehud as the, as the judge before him, or the one they at least go back to. Now, how did Israel, how does the Lord respond to Israel's evil? They're doing evil. How does God respond to them? Verse 2 says, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. He sold them. Now, I've talked about the Lord selling Israel or giving them into the hands of the enemy before here. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not. Both of those words, the Lord giving them into the hands of their enemy, the Lord selling them into the hands of their enemy, are commercial terms used of transferring ownership of property, property or cattle even, uh, and slaves. In other words, the Lord does what Israel is forbidden to do to Israel. In Leviticus 25, 42 Israelite citizens are not to be sold in a, in a slave sale, but the Lord sells his own people into slavery into the hands of the enemy because of their evil. And just like we cannot comprehend the deep, deep love of Jesus, as the song says, so we cannot comprehend the furious wrath of God against evil, including the people of Israel. So God sells them into the hands of this wicked king. Now, who is this guy Jabin, king of Canaan? Well, Joshua 11, 1 to 15, describes Joshua's victory over, over Jabin in the city of Hatzor. Uh, by the way, Jabin is not a personal name, but it's, it's a title given to the kings in that, in that region for that dynasty. Hatzor was a strategic city just north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, by the way, Hatzor is way up here somewhere. Yeah, way up there. And so it was a strategic city. It was burnt by fire about a century before the events of Judges chapter 4. It was burnt by fire about 100 years prior to that. It was not occupied by Israel as it should have been. And so sometime, after some time elapses, a guy, somebody rises up, and we don't know all the details of this, and he takes his title of Jabin, and he manages to raise an army, a huge army, and he employs as his commander a guy named Sisera. Not much is said about him either, except he lives in that place called Harasheth Hagayim. Now, nothing is known of the precise location of that town either, as is often the case with ancient cities. Verse 3 tells us why Israel cries out. They cry out to the Lord. They tell us, it tells us why. Two reasons. Number one, he had 900 chariots of iron. And we know from looking at this previously, that was a superior military technology in that time. Everybody was afraid of the chariots of iron. No one could defeat them. Everyone was intimidated by them, including Israel. And so they were crying out to the Lord because of this. And they were also crying out to the Lord because Jabin oppressed Israel, mainly the northern tribes. And this oppression lasted for 20 long years. That brings us to the leadership of Deborah. This is almost like scenes in a movie, this chapter here, verses 4 to 10. The leadership of Deborah. Let's read verses 4 to 10. <clears throat> chapter 4, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak. By the way, his name is actually pronounced Barak. You know, I have a problem with these names sometimes because you wonder whether to pronounce it correctly or the way we always say it in America. So if I say Barak or Barak, just forgive me, okay? Some of the names I've already mispronounced on purpose because it would be bizarre if I said it the right way. So it's always a struggle in my mind. Anyway, she sent and summoned Barak, 
the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali, from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon. I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. We're introduced to Deborah here and her leadership in this, in this verse. Uh, she's the next judge uh, to appear before us. Uh, before I say anything about her, though, I want you to notice something. Nothing is said about the Lord raising her up as judge in this chapter. It doesn't say that in chapter 4. Chapter 3, it says the Lord raised up Othniel as the, judge, as the first judge. And then it says the Lord raised up Ehud as the second judge. However, Shamgar, it says nothing about him being raised up as judge at all. And then Deborah doesn't say that as well, doesn't say that she was raised up. So there's always this variation in the, in the general order or the pattern that we're given in chapter 2. But nevertheless, in the providence of God, Deborah is the next judge. Now, verse 4 is very interesting. Listen to this carefully. The verse literally reads like this. And I don't know why the English translations will not bring all this out. But it says in verse 4, literally, Now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she was judging Israel at the time. Now, you'll see a little of that in your NASB column if you have that. It reflects a little of that. But it says literally, now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she was judging Israel at the time. In one verse, she's called a woman, she's called a prophetess, she's called a wife, and she's called a judge. And by the way, her name, Deborah, means bee. I have a daughter-in-law named Deborah, and I didn't know it before. She's, she loves ornaments and paintings and all that stuff that's got to do with bees. Now I know why. I didn't know it until I looked at this. Um, her name means bee, apparently. But she's called a woman, first of all. I know you don't see that in your text, but she is literally called a woman uh, as we describe Deborah here. Now, the question to ask in this, in a, in a world run by men at that time, why is there a woman in leadership? Why is that? Well, the usual answer is that there's a shortage of men available uh, to, to lead the, co- the country. And that, I guess that's possible, although all the other men, all the other judges are men in this book. I don't know why you couldn't find another one in that time. Maybe they just get, and, the, and some of the judges are not all that great, but they're men anyway, and they're, ro- and they're ruling the, a certain part of the country. Uh, it could be that, uh, there's a couple of possibilities. It could be that this is the, uh, the time of the judges is a very topsy-turvy time, and everything's kind of crazy anyway, which could play into the fact that there's a shortage of men. Or number two, it could be that the Lord is doing something unique here in this case. We're not told the reason why. Uh, and that's typical of judges. He uses a left-handed guy in chapter 3. He uses a guy who, who wills an ox goat in chapter 3. Um, he uses a guy who's what is referred to often as the ideal judge uh, in chapter 3. And maybe here he's using a woman uh, as in, in, in another way to show his uniqueness, kind of like Margaret Thatcher. I don't know if you remember Margaret Thatcher or not. used to be the prime minister of England. Maybe kind of a Margaret Thatcher here. So she's, it says, first of all, she's a woman, and, that's, and the text makes that clear, points it out. I want you to know that this is a woman judging at this time. Secondly, it says she's a prophetess. And I think this is the main thing. As you, as you look at the life of Deborah, 
The main thing to keep in mind is not even that she's a judge, but that she's a prophetess. This stands out first and foremost. You'll see this throughout her in her life in these two chapters. A prophet is a spokesman for God. A prophetess is a spokeswoman for God, obviously. And she's not alone in this office. There were others. There were some. You remember Miriam back in Exodus was a prophetess, Moses' sister. There is a woman called Huldah in 2 Kings 22 who is a prophetess. There is a woman in Nehemiah 6 called Noadiah who is a prophetess, although she's a false prophetess, so scratch her off the list. She doesn't belong on that list of godly women. There's Anna in Luke chapter 2 is mentioned as a prophetess. And there are the four unmarried daughters of Philip in Acts 20, who, of whom it is said they prophesy. It's all it says. Probably prophesying to their future husbands is my guess. But they're, they're prophesying in Acts 21, rather. So there are not many prophecies as mentioned, but there are some, and they're definitely used of God to do his work. And I believe at this time, Deborah, however you want to frame this, and whatever reasons you want to give, doesn't really matter. At this time, Deborah is being used of God as his instrument to do his work, without a doubt. Now, this does not mean, as some have argued, that this verse, that these verses in, Deborah, in, in, in Judges 4 can be used to say that women can be pastors in a church. This is ridiculous reasoning. This is the Old Testament here in, in, in uh, Judges. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 2 make it clear that men are called to lead the church, to pastor the church, that kind of thing. But it does mean that God used Deborah uniquely at this time in history. She's a prophetess. She's also called the wife of Lapidoth. And that's all we hear about this guy. His name is mentioned. At least he's got, he got, you know, to get your name mentioned in the Bible is a great thing, though, if nothing else, right? He wasn't a prophet or anything like that. Nothing is known of the guy. We don't know what he did for a living or anything. She's called the wife of Lapidoth. He doesn't get any other notoriety than that. And then she's called a judge. <clears throat> she was judging Israel at the time, it says in verse 4. At the end of verse 5, the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. In other words, she was governing, governing Israel at the time, uh, leading Israel. We've talked about that already. And where was her office located? This is a great office, by the way. In verse 5, it was under the palm tree of Deborah. Not uh, in a cubicle somewhere, but under the palm tree of Deborah, Deborah, right? The important thing to remember about this palm tree was, this particular palm tree, was that it was located in the hill country of Ephraim, which was a central location for all Israel to be able to come to her to be for judgment. Furthermore, the site was between Bethel and Ramah, or Shiloh, where the ark was. That's between Bethel and Shiloh, right around here in the central part of Israel. That's where its location is. She was outside the town of Bethel and Shiloh and Ramah, which... Was, which meant she was kind of an alternative for the priesthood. Apparently the priesthood had completely failed at this time and, and people weren't going to them, which is a sad commentary on the priesthood at the time. They were going to Deborah instead. Now let me say something about Deborah and all godly women. And I, and, and I want you to understand that we believe this in this church and, we, and we, we know the scripture teaches us that God uses women as well as men. God uses women as well as men. They play different roles throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. But God uses them as well as men. You know, we, we, we talk about in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 14, 2.14, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. We know that. We know that women are not, as again, as I've said already, are not called to pastor a church, have authority over the church, per se. But they have their vital role to play 
and their and their and their and their and the role that God has given them. They have a vital role to play. And think of the women that the New Testament refers to uh, again and again: uh, Priscilla, Lydia, Dorcas, Phoebe, Mary in the book of in, in Romans 16, and others are mentioned that God has used. In Romans 16:1 and 2, Paul says to the church of Rome, he says, uh, "I commend to you Phoebe, the, a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you receive her. She's been a helper of many people." And so God, and Paul is, is backing this, and so God uses God uses women. He used women in the Old Testament. He used women in the New Testament. He still uses women today. So God uses women to do his work, definitely. We go to verse 6 and 7. You'll see the prophetic. Well, we're still talking about the leadership of Deborah. You'll see a prophetic word from Deborah to Barak in verses 6 and 7. He sa- she says there uh, in verse 6, uh, she says, you know, the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded, go march to Mount Tabor, get your armor together. I'm going to draw out to you Sisera, and I'm going to give him into your hand. It says there. This is put in the form of a command. She says the Lord commanded. This is a word from God, okay? She's being used to give a word from God. She says the Lord has commanded that you do this. By the way, Deborah, a very humble woman apparently. You don't ever see her doing, exercising anything but humility in this chapter and, and praising the Lord constantly. But she says to Barak, go and to march. These are commands that she gives that the Lord has given. He's to go to Mount Tabor, which is up here, way up here in the north. That's where the battle is going to take place in chapter 4. He's to go there. That's way, it's 1,800 feet above sea level. And this is a very important crossroads in the region. This is where the battles take place. So the Lord is not only commissioning Barak, but he's giving the strategy and the location of the battle as well. And then secondly, the Lord guarantees the victory. He says, I'm going to bring the, the enemy to you. I'm going to bring his army to you, his 900 chariots of iron. I'm going to give him into your hand. He guarantees the victory. To Barak. So all is set, all is ready for battle. The only thing that's needed is human cooperation. That's all that's needed now is human cooperation. But this is where we see Barak hesitate. Look at verse 8. It says here, Then Barak said to her, she says, Go and fight the battle. He says to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He says, I absolutely will not be involved in this enterprise unless you, Deborah, go with me, go along with me. Now, much has been said as to why Barak gave this answer. The one thing that's clear is that the actual motive of Barak in, in verse 8 is not even given. We do not know the actual motive of Barak in saying this. Now, I know what I've normally heard about Barak throughout the... Ryan, I'm sure you've heard the same sermons. He was a mama's boy. He was a sissy. He was weak-kneed. Barak was a coward. He was a wimp. He had to have a woman's hand holding his hand throughout the battle. All these things. Now, I guess that reasoning is possible, but I'm not sure how accurate it is. It just seems strange to me that Deborah knew Barak, something about Barak, to pick him to be the leader in this battle. She obviously knew he was a military man of some sort and not a sissy at all, I'm guessing. Now, as I looked at the text of the Bible, apart from commentators and all that, it occurred to me that the possible reason for Barak's statement in verse 8 is that Barak wanted the blessing of God upon his military efforts. That's why he says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. Because he knew that Deborah was a woman of God, a prophetess, a woman that walked with God, that loved God, that served God, that honored God, and she, she does that throughout the two chapters. And I think, this is my take on it, I think she wanted the representative of God to go with him 
So he would, be, he would have her in battle for the, so the blessing of God would be upon him. That's what I think. I think he wanted God's spokesperson to be with him for spiritual support. I think that's why he did it. We're not told why he did it. That's my take on it. Now, the question is, does that mean that Barak is totally devoid of faith altogether? He has no faith. He doesn't believe what Deborah said in verse 7. He doesn't believe the Lord's going to give him the victory. I don't believe that either because I believe he was a man of faith. And why do I say that? Well, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. A very interesting verse in more, than one, more ways than one. Hebrews chapter 11. As you know, this chapter tells of many saints who put their faith in God. It's what the chapter's all about. They did what they did by faith in God. We read about the faith of Noah and the faith of Enoch and the faith of Moses, and it goes on. Let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And the writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith, Conquer kingdoms, perform acts of righteousness, obtain promises, shut the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and so on. The first four people mentioned in verse 32 are all from the book of Judges. Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, Barak. Gideon, Samson, and Jephthah are all judges. And so some think that Deborah was not a judge based on this verse, that Barak was the real judge. And I don't want to get in an argument about that. In fact, the charge has been leveled because Judges says that Deborah was the judge. The charge has been leveled against the writer of Hebrews that he was biased against women. So he didn't put the Deborah in there, which is absurd because this is the scripture is given by inspiration of God and God doesn't have a bias against a woman or an agenda, uh, some human agenda. And the very chapter that says that that says that Hebrews, in Hebrews rather, that we're looking at, talks about women, women of faith. Look at verse 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. Not a bias against women. Verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Verse 35. Women received their, back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured and so on. The writers of Hebrews was not biased against women, uh, nor was the writer of Judges, by the way, promoting a feminist agenda. Neither are true. It's simply the word of the Lord. These are the facts as God gave them. Why is Deborah not mentioned in Hebrews, by the way? Well, we're not given a reason, but it could be, speculation, <laughs> could be that all four of these men that are mentioned, they were, not could be, they were involved in, in actual military deliverance of Israel. And Deborah was not involved in the actual military deliverance of Israel. In other words, she did not lead the army into battle. She was a judge. She gave the order to go, but she was not in command of the army. That was Barak's job, and that's what she gave him to do. She told him to do that. That could be. I don't know. We're not given the reason. Nevertheless, back in Judges 4, Deborah is not shocked by his answer that he won't go unless Deborah goes with him. In verse 9, she says, immediately I will surely go with you. She promises that he'll, she'll go with him. Now, the statement that follows uh, in, in verse 9, Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey you're about to take. The Lord will sell Caesarea into the hands of a woman. That is normally considered a rebuke by Deborah, but it could, be, it could, easily, just be ta- it could just as easily be taken as a statement of fact. It's just a statement of fact. You're not going to get the honor, Barak, if I go with you. 
a woman's going to get the honor. So that could be that. That could be the case. The interesting thing is, rebuke or not, if you study Barak in this chapter, you'll notice that he doesn't seem to care who gets the glory at all. He never says anything about it. He never whines about not getting the glory in either chapter. You don't see him doing that. But you do see Barak in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith who's trusting God. Let me ask you a question. Do you care who gets the glory in your life? Do you care? What if you were to go into battle like Barak did and you didn't get the glory? How would you feel about that? But a woman got it instead. How would you feel? What if you do all the work in the ministry, but someone else gets the glory? Other people get the applause, but you're doing all the work behind the scenes or whatever. How will you respond to that? I think we just need to be content to let God get the glory, ultimately. Content to, to let him get the glory. And be content if others are recognized and you're not recognized. And I think that's what God wants. It's like Martin, uh, not Martin, but Martyr X, the great Martyr X said at the rap concert the other night we were at. He said, if you ain't glorifying God, what you living for? And that's true. That's what he said. He said it again and again. What are we living for if we're not glorifying God? Don't worry about who gets the credit. Be content that the Lord gets the credit. And I, I'll, I'll even add this. Pray that you yourself do not get the credit or the glory. Only God. Did Deborah think that the woman who would, go, who would get the honor would be herself? That's what the readers led to believe in this verse at this point. The readers led to believe that Deborah's going to get the glory. But she doesn't say what woman, does she? She only says the Lord's going to sell Sarah into the hands of a woman. And by the way, it's going to be the Lord who sells Sarah into the hands of a woman. He's going to be behind this. Again, we're confronted by the sovereignty of God in the midst of the battle even. This battle is not in the hands of Deborah. It's not in the hands of Barak or anybody else, but it is in the hands of God. And that's the thing we need to keep in mind. The Lord will be the one to sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And so what do they do? Barak, in verse 10, Barak does as Deborah says. He calls men together out of Naphtali and Zebulun to listen in the battle, and they do that. Deborah's true to her word, and twice it says she's going to accompany him. Look at that. At the end of verse 9, it says, Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Verse 10, at the end of the verse. Deborah also went up with him to almost to emphasize the fact she's going to do what he asked her to do, request, to fulfill his request. And then we move on in the story. Notice the devastation of Sisera's army in verses 11 to 16, the devastation of Sisera's army. Now, verse 11 seems to be almost an aside to the whole story. As it seems to have nothing to do with anything at all. Verse 11. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites and from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanam, which is near Kadesh. What does that have to do with the battle at all? It's almost as if somebody inserted a verse from Deuteronomy or something in here, you know? And we're introduced to a new character, Heber the Kenite, here all of a sudden. But this is not the first time we encounter the Kenites. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 16. Judges 1, 16. It says there, <clears throat> the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived among the people, with the people. Moses' father-in-law there, by, by the way, is called a Kenite. He's also called a Midianite, which and probably the Kenites were associated with the Midianites in some way, so they're called by both, both names. But in 116, the Kenites moved to Judah in southern Israel. 
They moved down here in the south, way down in the south in Israel in 116. Then in 411, we're told that Heber had decides to separate himself from the Kenite clan and move way up north to another part of the country. That seems very insignificant, doesn't it? He moves from down south here to way up north somewhere, maybe near Hatzor, they're not sure where. He goes way up north. So it's moving day for Heber, and the battle waits for us to pick it up in the next verse, right? But that's going to play a vital role in the story as it unfolds. The smallest and most mundane of details God uses ultimately for his purposes. Keep that in mind. Verses 12 and 13 describe the armies getting into position for battle. Let's read those. Then they told Caesarea that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, went up way up in the north of Mount Tabor for the battle. Caesarea called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagim to the river Kishon. The river Kishon is around, thanks Ben for doing this, around here. There's the battle scene. Kishon River comes through here, near, right near there, right, right through there actually. And so it says in verse, verse 13, it was near the river Kishon. Verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. <clears throat> it says, this is the day. This is a very sure word from Deborah. She says in verse 14, this is the day that the Lord has, sold, has given Caesarea into your hands. She does not lead them in the battle. She signals the start of it, go. This is the time to go into battle. As the prophetess, she gives the word, go. And Barak, and by the way, she talks about her favorite subject, which is what? The Lord, right? Every time Deborah opens her mouth, she's talking about the Lord, constantly. You ever notice that? I really believe, I honestly believe that of all the judges and judges, the most godly of them was Deborah. The most godly of the judges was Deborah. She's always emphasizing the Lord. You know, a person who's, who's walking with the Lord, a person who's living for the Lord, a person who thinks about the Lord, will be what? Talking about the Lord, right? As well. And Deborah does that. She attributes the future victory of Israel to the Lord. She says in verse 14, the Lord has gone out before you. And so with this encouragement, Barak leads his men out into battle. Now verse 15 is, is the key to the chapter. It says in verse 15, the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots, and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. The question is, who is it that wins the battle? Is it Deborah, the judge? Is it Barak, the general? No, it's the Lord, ultimately, who wins the battle. The Nazi says the Lord routed them. But the word, the word routed means to bring into motion and into confusion, confuse the enemy. What means that the Lord do, used to accomplish this? I believe two things happen here. I first of all believe the Lord used the sword to do this. It says that in verse 15. It says he routed Sisera with the edge of the sword before Barak. Verse 15, 16 says all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. So the sword was definitely used. But there's another thing that happens, something more important than that, I think, that we don't see until we get to chapter 5. And we'll major on chapter 5 next time. But look at chapter 5, verse 20, for right now. <clears throat> Three verses, verse 20 and verse 21. This is the poem or the song of Deborah. She's talking about the war, the battle, and she says, The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. The Lord did what no one else could do. He defeated 900 iron chariots. 
He defeated them. How did he do it? Because he sent, somehow he sent a rainstorm to, the, to that area that caused the Kishon River right near that area to flood. And it either swept away all the iron chariots or caused them to lose their traction. It just messed the whole confused. He, he routed them. It confused everything. So the Lord is behind all this. And so the advantage of the iron chariots is now removed. And they're able to go in and win the battle. It was the intervention of God that brought this about. So in 4.15 it says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, don't overlook that word, his 900 chariots of iron and all his army. Barak, the sissy Barak pursues the fleeing army until all of them are defeated except for one. So Sisera's army is devastated because the Lord did it. And then look at, let's look at the assassination of Sisera. Verses 17 and 22, the assassination of Sisera. It says in verse 17, let's read 17 and 22. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabe and the king of Hatzor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. Boy, I tell you what, I'd be afraid at that point. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer to her inner hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground. For he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. Now verses 15 and 17 tell us that Sisera fled away on foot. The, use, the, the, the iron chariots no longer uh, useful for him. He realizes it's a total disaster. The army is being defeated. He gets off and, and, and runs for it on foot. And he can't go back home because it's over with right now for his army. So he goes to the next logical place. He runs to the tent of Heber the Kenite. He knows where it is. By the way, that tent just happens to be in the right geographical location. Remember verse 11? Verse 11 said that that little side note about the moving day for Heber the Kenite. He had moved up to the north. Now we know why. God in his providence has it right in the right place. So Heber runs. We don't know how long. He runs on foot, and he ends up in Heber the Kenite's tent, Jael, Jael's tent, actually. And so we can see in God's providence that it was made not only possible for this to happen, but it became a reality because God had everything exactly the way he wanted it to geographically. The Bible says that the mind of man plans his way but it is the Lord that directs his steps. So God is always working behind the scenes. So the stage is set now for the conclusion of the story. Not only is Heber in the right geographical location, but there is some kind of alliance going on between Heber the, the Kenite, apparently had a, a, a big enough group of people with them to have an alliance between him and Jabin, the king of, of, uh, of Canaan. And they had peaceful relations between the two. So God had worked all the details in advance for all this to take place. 
And now we are introduced to the final new character in the story, and that is the lovely and kind-hearted J.L., the wife of Heber. Her name means mountain goat. <laughs> and I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but she was as tough as a mountain goat. I don't think mountain goats are anything to mess with, by the way, from what I understand of them. She controls all the events in these verses. You notice that? It's, she's the one to go out and meet Sisera. She's the one that initi initiates the conversation. She is the one who invites a strange man into her tent. She's the one that covers him with a rug. She's the one that gives him assurance. She's the one that says, don't be afraid. I'll take care of everything. Now, understand, he's running for his life at this time. His army has been decimated. He knows it's happening. He's, he's defeated. He's weary. He's probably afraid. He doesn't know where to go. He's running to the only logical place he can. He thinks he's got an alliance with Heber the Kenite. He actually does have one. And so he's running there. He's thirsty, probably really thirsty from the battle and from the long run, however long it was. Tired. He believes he can find refuge in this place because of his alliance with Heber. In verse 19, he requests water. But again, she controls the whole thing and she gives him milk instead. I don't know why. It's one of the unanswered questions of this section. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this section that will remain unanswered because we don't know the answers to them. By the way, it's not a bottle of milk, Nasby says. Not the kind you get at Winn-Dixie or something. <laughs> it is a skin, actually a skin of milk. The milk was put in back in that time and that kept it. And that's, that's how they did it. Why does she give him milk instead of water? I don't know. That's what she does. Some people think to induce sleep. But the guy was tired. He was exhausted from all that... Stuff he'd just been through, we talked about. We'll have to be content with what we do, what we do know here. But in verse 20, Cicera says to, uh, to uh, Jael, he says to her to lie for me. If anyone comes to the tent, in other words, if Barak comes to the tent looking for me, lie, tell him I'm not here. Tell him I'm somebody else's tent somewhere. Verse 21, we find that Jael was very efficient with a tent peg and a hammer, don't we? What happened? <laughs> uh, the reason that she was efficient was because the putting up, my understanding of this at least, is the putting up and taking down of tents was the work of a woman back then. So she did this who knows how often, and she was really, in, in, you know, she's like a mountain goat, okay? She's a tough woman. She's out there in the country. She's maybe by herself often, and she just developed into a tough person apparently, very tough person. It really doesn't have a whole lot of emotions going on, it doesn't seem like. Uh, and so she is very efficient with this. And so she's accustomed to using the hammer and the tent peg. And so Sarah is completely exhausted and sound asleep by this time. So she takes her opportunity and she drives the peg through his temple into the ground. She kills him with the tent peg and the hammer. So needless to say, it was a nightmare for Sarah, right? The kind he wouldn't wake up from. In verse 22, Barak arrives, and once again, what happens? Does J.L. sit in the tent and wait for him to come? No, she goes out to meet him. <laughs> she initiates the conversation. Uh, by the way, this breaks all the rules of ancient Near Eastern customs back then. All the rules are broken. Women didn't do this. They didn't, they didn't do all that stuff in society, initiate all this stuff. They didn't do any of that. So she breaks all those rules, and, and it goes against the complete idea of hospitality in the ancient Near East, hospitality, wow, I don't want to stop at that tent. And uh, she kills Sisera. Another unanswered question in the text, why does she kill Sisera? 
Boy, she seems like she's such a mean person, you know? There's nothing, there's not a nice bone in her body. She's just ready to kill the guy, and that's the end of it, deceitfully, too. Why did she do this? It doesn't tell us. But possibly because at one time, you remember when they were in the southern portion with Judah? They were friends of Israel at the time. And maybe she remembers that. I don't know. This is speculation again. Maybe she remembers that. Maybe she hated this new alliance with, with uh, Jabin. Maybe she didn't like any of those guys. And maybe she was out to get them. She remembered the past. I get the idea she hated them at any rate. She definitely must have. At any rate, the Lord used her to do this. And what Deborah prophesied in verse 9 comes true in this section of Scripture. It was not Deborah that was the woman in question that would get the honors. J.L., who's this mountain goat of a woman. She's the one that gets the honor for this. She becomes the agent of divine deliverance at this time. Unlikely, isn't it? This is how God works in unlikely, strange ways at times. Can you imagine the reaction of her husband when he gets home? He were the Kenite? You know, honey, how'd your day go today? <laughs> you know, uh, would you like to talk about it? She probably didn't talk about much of anything. She just took action all the time. In the last two verses, the exaltation of God in verses 23 and 24, the exaltation of God. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And I think there's two final observations I want to make concerning this, these last two verses, this conclusion. We've talked about all the exploits of Deborah and Barak and Jael, I call them a team of deliverers for Israel, each used in a unique way to, to bring about this deliverance. But the one behind it all, again, is God, is he not? It says in verse 23, God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of, uh, king of Canaan. God did it. The word subdued means to humble or to bring low. God brought Jabin down low. God humbled Jabin, who was probably filled with pride, is my guess, with his mighty army and his 900 chariots of iron. How could he not be? God brings him low, humbles him, devastates his army completely, destroys his army. And so God gets the glory. You know, we've got to always realize no matter who's involved in the work of God, no matter how great the name is, how well-known the person is, how great his talents or abilities, it is God who should get the praise in the Lord's work. He should always get the praise. We cannot do anything at all apart from him. He's the one providentially guiding. We see that in this chapter, don't we? providentially guiding all details. It's his presence that is with us. He's the one who grants the victory, and he's the one who should get the glory. God, is, God subdued Jabin. And then the last observation I want to make is this. The last two verses of this chapter teaches the lesson that's repeated over and over again in Scripture. It's a lesson concerning, again, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. In verse 23, God is credited with subduing the enemy, which he does. But in verse 24, Israel is the one keeping the pressure up on Jabin until he's finally destroyed, it says. Both of these are true. We see it throughout the chapter. Think about this. Deborah prophesies. God fulfills the prophecy. Barak goes into battle, but God gives him the victory. Jael gives, kills Sisera, but it was the Lord that sold him into her hands. And Israel pressured Jabin, but God subdued Jabin. Both Always, God's sovereign, man's responsible, always working together. A.W. Pink said this, The same God who has decreed that a certain goal shall be accomplished has also decreed 
that that goal shall be attained through and as a result of his own appointed means. He says, God does not, dis- God does not disdain the use of ma- means, nor must I. You should never disdain the use of means or the responsibility of man. It's not just God and it's not just man. It's God working through man, isn't it? As God brings about his exaltation. And so these two are not in opposition to one, one to the other. Responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. In fact, God has designed that they work together. Always, throughout the scriptures, we see this. But the problem is people want to take one side of the argument or the other. But both work together. What does this mean for us today? It means that while we are engaged in the Lord's work, we've got to remember that is the, Lord's, is, the Lord is the one who is directing the work. He's overseeing the whole operation. Because this and this alone will ultimately lead to his exaltation. Let's give the Lord praise tonight as we pray, as we close in prayer. And also, let's remember uh, the uh, couple, Van and uh, Jennifer, uh, and, their, and their baby that was lost. Let's pray for them. Lord, we thank you for the, for your, the time tonight and for your word. Uh, we pray that uh, your blessing will be upon your word tonight. We pray that we'll be uh, strengthened by your word tonight. We pray that we'll learn tonight, Lord, that we do work for you, but we do so in the power of God and that we give glory to you for all that's done and exalt you always. We pray for this couple tonight, Lord, that has lost this baby. We pray for their strengthening. We don't know if they know you or not. We pray for their salvation if they don't. We pray for their, that we'll be an encouragement to them and a blessing to them. Pray you'll use us any way you can to reach out to them. And we just pray for, their, uh, for your uh, overall comfort for them tonight. And we, we give the, put them into your care, Lord, and we just pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.